please, to Acts chapter 24. If you recall our study of Acts in chapter 23, the Apostle Paul had concluded his third missionary journey. He was in Jerusalem. He was participating in some Jewish purification rites and worshiping peacefully at the temple, minding his own business. When he was attacked by Jews from Asia who had heard him preach before and didn't like his message, Roman soldiers came to the rescue, and during their interrogation, it was discovered that he was a Roman citizen. So the soldiers kept him in protective custody, and then it was discovered that there was an assassination plot. Someone wanted Paul dead. So the tribune, the commander of the Roman garrison, had Paul sent to Caesarea under protective care, where the governor Felix agreed to hear the case, but once, only once his accusers could attend. So as we open this morning in chapter 24, the Apostle Paul has been several days at Caesarea. And some of the hand of Sanhedrin has come down for a hearing before Governor Felix. Verse 1 of chapter 24 after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when, when, he had, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, with, we accept we accept with this all gratitude. But to, ta- but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. Who stirs one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and, and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather acute knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lucius the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help and your guidance as we look together into your word. And we pray this morning that you may speak to our hearts and help us be encouraged and instructed and challenged by what we see this day. It is for your glory, we pray. Amen. Each Christian who understands the concept of God's providence must also realize that he or she has been prepared, called and equipped by God to glorify and serve him faithfully. We've seen, we'll, we're going to look at how Paul was prepared and how he was faithful, and by his example, we are challenged. But each and every one of us needs to understand, if we trust the concept, the teaching, the principle, the doctrine of God's providence, we need to understand, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in Christian maturity of your faith, you are there for a purpose and for a reason. God has equipped you. God has prepared you. And God will use you for his glory. We understand from our confessions that the works of God's providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures that means you, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. In our modern understanding of the word ordering, we think that it's, it's, it takes on kind of a, a military effect that we're just waiting for God to tell us what to do. But it's not that kind of word or understanding. It's not telling us what to do, but arranging, orchestrating everything in life in such a way that God's purposes are always fulfilled. We need to recognize his hand at work in our lives. We, lie, we love to quote Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We love that passage. It is a great comfort. It is a great truth. But we very often take it in a passive sense. It needs to be understood actively. And that we as Christians, understanding and believing and trusting in God's providence, must realize that no matter who you are, you have been equipped and prepared and called by God to glorify and serve him faithfully. Looking at Paul's example, we want to see some just three, three principles of three points. His preparation, he was determined to be faithful, and his example. Now, we don't see so much of his preparation out of this morning's text, but we find it elsewhere in Scripture. One young man by the name of Saul, who later became known as Paul, was prepared and specifically chosen. He was born a Jew. He was born a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin in the city of Tarsus of Cilicia. He was born with, blessed with a Roman citizenship that eventually served him well and kept him safe for a while. It opened up doors for him in his ministry. Acts 22, verse 3 says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the sect, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So the, the Apostle Paul, by his own testimony, gives us a very clear understanding of where he came from and who he was. And we all know the story that he was seeking out those who were of the way, those who were following the Nazarene who died on a cross, and he was having them arrested and even having some of them sentenced to die. And on the road to Damascus, the glorified Christ revealed himself to Saul and saved him. Saul was blinded for three days until the Lord sent a man by the name of Ananias. Told Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Saul, or Paul, let's call him Paul from here on out, was prepared. Paul was prepared for a special mission. He was, by God's providence, his birth was special. It was specific. His citizenship was special. It was specific. His education was special and necessary. We have found out in our studies that he was multilingual. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. He probably knew Latin. And he's very passionate about his ministry. That is in regards to his preparation. What about his qualifications? How is he qualified to be an apostle? 
we know of the 12 apostles. The office of apostle is no more in the church. It was something temporary. There are some denominations in Christ, under the banner of Christianity who claim that the, the apostolic office, the apostolic ordain, ordination is still valid. We disagree wholeheartedly. The office was meant to lay the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.19. The apostle Paul wrote to that church saying, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostolic office ended once the apostles perished and the canon of scripture was complete. The apostles were given a very special blessing of miraculous gifts that were used to help establish or build a foundation for the church. And once they were gone, that office dissolved. The qualifications of the apostles they had to have been witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They had to have been explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. And they had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. We ask, well, what about Paul? Paul was not one of those 12. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul asked that church, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Well, we know that the apostle that Saul saw Christ on the road to Damascus, was that the only time he had seen him? 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul was prepared for a special mission by his birth, his citizenship, his education, and his passion. He was also qualified. Well, preacher, that's wonderful, but I could never be a Paul. I'm not asking you to. I could never be a Paul. By God's providence, Paul was prepared. By God's providence, so are you. You've surrendered to the idea, well, I could never be like Paul. I'm encouraged to hear, of, hear and read about him in Acts and in, in the epistles he's writing. I'm encouraged by his 
by the letters he wrote, they teach me, they nourish my heart, they nourish my soul. But do they help you step into action? I could never be like Paul. So you offer very little effort or gratitude for what the Lord has done for you. God has not only saved you, brother and sister, God, by his providence, has prepared you to serve him. Your birth, your citizenship, your education, all of that could be used for his glory, not just to acquire your own ease and comfort. All of these things are yours by the grace of God. Take advantage of that for his glory. You're very familiar with the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. A man was going away for a while. He gave, chose three of his servants. He gave one servant five talents. Talents meaning money, not gifts. A measure of money, talents, five talents. Another he gave two and another one. The first two, the one who had five talents, doubled it, returned the gain to his master when he returned. The second did the same thing, and the master gave them blessings, gave them more responsibility, gave them more honor. And the one who was given the benefit of just one talent did nothing with it, held his master in contempt, hid it. Here, you came back here. You gave it to me. Here, it's back. You can have it back. I did nothing with it. All of the things in your life that you have been blessed with, by the grace of God, by his providence, have been given to you for a purpose. Are you taking advantage of it? We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5, 20. So we see the preparation of Paul. Paul was prepared and we also know that you were prepared. Paul was also determined to be faithful. Being faithful is not just being good or staying true. It's about being faithful to the gospel message. It's about being determined not to compromise. Paul was often criticized in his preaching. His preaching was plain and clear and always always called everyone to repentance. That's part of the gospel. If you're going to believe in Christ as your Savior, he has to save you or redeem you from something. If you're not a sinner, you don't realize how sick you are because you are a sinner. If you don't own up to the fact that you are a sinner in need of salvation, in need of cleansing, then Christ will have very little use for you. 
Paul's preaching was not always a popular message. Yet Paul was faithful to do what Christ called him to do. Repentance is part of the gospel message. Matthew chapter 4, when Matthew records the beginning of Christ's ministry, after his baptism, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even Jesus himself preached repentance. Even further on in Christ's ministry, in Mark chapter 1, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is always a part of the gospel message. And the repentance is that one thing that makes people uncomfortable because people don't like to talk about what's wrong with them. They don't like that exposed. I don't need to change. I just need to do better. No, you need to change. And God, through his word and the Holy Spirit, will help you. In our text, we see Paul's determination to be faithful. After the five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But, we, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. We have found this man, this Paul, a plague in one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews all joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Tertullus was a hired spokesman. He may have been a lawyer, but he was there, an orator there, to impress the governor, to convince him of their case, their complaints against Paul. He flattered Felix. And he lied about Paul. In verse 10, when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied, if you remember Felix, or excuse me, Tertullus flattered Felix, told him how good he had done, how, what a wonderful benefit he had been to the kingdom, and all the good things that he had overseen. It was flattery. Paul is succinct, he's polite, he's respectful, but he doesn't offer 
false flattery. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they know that they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have clear conscience toward God, both God and man. Paul is saying, I always take pains to be faithful in my message, always. Verse 17, after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to, bring, and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia. By the way, Felix, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now Paul is standing before the highest court in the province. The governor is in front of him. With a word, Felix could have Paul put away. The representatives from Jerusalem, if they, with their false accusations, could convince Felix that Paul was a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, Paul could be put in jail. Paul could be sold into slavery, or Paul could even be put to death. Paul had already been physically beaten by these people. But was Paul intimidated? He was fearless. He stood there before all of them and did not back down, did not apologize, did not compromise. He was fearless. By God's providence, he was prepared for his mission. And he was determined to be faithful. We've already mentioned this text before. Let me reiterate Galatians 1, 8, and 9 in previous messages before. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Paul says it twice in verse 8 and verse 9. Do not compromise on the gospel. And that includes calling people to repentance. 
The true gospel is not a popular message. Oh, yeah, good, it's good news, but it's necessary to expose the bad news first. You need to remind people that they need a Savior because they are lost. They need cleansing because of the shame of their sin. They need renewal. They need rebirth. Many in the church today are trying to convince the world that the church is ready to be nice. We know that the LGBTQ crowd is angry with the church. We know that the abortion, pro-abortion people are angry with Christianity. And it seems like so many churches in America and around the world are ready to cave. Okay, we'll be nice, we'll be friendly, we'll be gracious, we'll be kind. A theologian who lived during the peak of the social gospel movement this, new, this, this is nothing new. This has been going on for nearly 150 years. It's just been getting progressively worse. A man by the name of Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called The Kingdom of God in America. And he described the social gospel this way. The social gospel preaches a God without wrath brought men into men without sin, into the kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's the social gospel in a nutshell. And for the compromised church, that's exactly what they're doing. God's no longer angry at anyone. He's good. Some of you may remember a few years ago, not been very long ago, I believe it was the PCUSA wanted to include a new hymn or new within the last 30 years in their new publication of the hymn book, Before the Throne of God. But they wanted to change the words. And they went all the way to the man who owned the copyright, the author of the, of the lyrics, Stuart Townend. They wanted to take out any reference to God's wrath. And praise the Lord, Mr. Townend refused. You may not change it. So they didn't put it in their hymn book. According to the social gospel, the betterment of society equals salvation. The betterment of society. Let's just make things better. People are basically good, as seen by the social gospel, and society is gradually becoming more moral. Is that true? If we feed enough people, educate enough children, dig enough wells, and redistribute enough wealth, then we will all see God's kingdom manifest. If we preach enough love, 
justice, brotherhood, and goodwill toward men, then the remnants of greed and selfishness in mankind will be overwhelmed and give way to goodness. And the church has been apologizing for preaching against homosexuality, and the church has even gotten to where many of them were so sorry that God made us white. God has called you and prepared you for a mission. Be determined to be faithful to your Lord and to his word. Be determined to be faithful. Paul was determined to be faithful. Well, how, how am I supposed to be faithful? Many of you are faithful, I know, and that is good. But you need to be seeking opportunities to be active in your faithfulness. For years, every good, faithful pastor has challenged their people, their congregations, their church members to regularly or even daily be in the word of God, read his word, and pray daily. And so many Christians are faithful to do that. But then there's also a personal commitment. Be vocal about what Christ has done for you. And so many people are, are a little shy about that. We need to stop being shy about it. That's where our determined faith must shine. And that might seem like works, but if you exercise the faith that's been given to you, if you exercise a faith that, has been, that you have been praying over, that's been fed by your reading and your daily devotions, it strengthens your faith, it strengthens your resolve, it allows the Spirit to work in you and through you for God's glory and for His purpose. No matter what you see, what you hear in this, in this world today, you must say, I will trust my Lord. I will trust his word. No matter what anyone else tells me, I will trust my Lord and I will trust his word. There are many young people, Christian young people, raised in Christian homes who lose their faith and abandon their faith during their first year in university. Because they had not learned to be determined in their faith. Some of us have been encouraged this past year when we heard about the Supreme Court ruling that has kind of struck down Roe v. Wade and put a big muzzle on abortion by demand. We need to be very careful. We praise the Lord about that, but we need to be very careful because we've only knocked down a few of the walls of their fortress. They are doing everything they can to shore up their walls and keep fighting. They're doing everything they can to get it back.
But when the devil and Satan comes and knocks down the walls of the church, it just seems like the church goes ahead and yields to compromise. Come right on in. We'll love you anyway. The church across America and around the world has accepted LGBTQ+. They've accepted all kinds of All kinds of greed, all kinds of fornication, all kinds of sin. The church no longer disciplines. The church no longer protects its walls. We've been prepared for a mission. We need to be determined to be faithful. And we need to live by example. In other other words... You need to teach your children, moms and dads, you need to teach your children to be determined in faith. Don't compromise. Don't let back. Don't surrender. Don't don't let your faith waver whatsoever. Keep trusting God's word. Keep trusting in him. One of the early church fathers was not an apostle, but he was taught. He was a disciple of John, the author of the gospel and the author of Revelation. His name was Polycarp. He was believed to be the Bishop of Smyrna during the first half of the second century. We understand that he was arrested as an old man. He was 86 years old and sentenced to death. The Roman proconsul took pity on Polycarp and urged him to recant. All you have to do is say that Caesar is Lord and then burn a little incense at his idol and we'll let you go home. Polycarp's response was, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They burned him at the stake for his faith and his refusal to apologize. We have each and every one of us. I don't care who you are. I don't care how small you think you are in the church. You have been prepared for a reason and for a purpose. You need to be determined to be faithful and you need to live by example. The faith you profess and believe. The late R.C. Sproul once said, and he phrased it as though it were a prayer, Oh God, don't let me be a coward who runs when the world is hostile. Brothers and sisters, we are in a hostile world. We need to stand. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for this time together and for your word and its truth. And we thank you for its power. 
May we trust it faithfully. May we trust it fearlessly. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.